With LawPay, your firm's finances are ready for whatever comes next. Our trusted solution secures your payment process, speeds up collections, and ensures IOLTA compliance, while freeing your time for what really matters, your clients. DC Bar members, sign up and we'll waive your monthly fee for three months. Learn more at lawpay.com slash dcbar. Hi everyone, this is Kirk Schroeder and I want to welcome you to another edition of Brief Encounters, the entertainment law edition for the DC Bar. And I'm excited today because I have a, a very special guest, someone I've known for quite some time, who is not only an academic, an expert in her own right in lawyering and speaks all over the world, but also has a great interest in our topic today. And so I want to welcome Professor Heidi Brown of the New York Law School. She's also an Associate Dean at uh, New York uh, Law School. So uh, Heidi, welcome to Brief Encounters. Thank you for uh, doing this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Absolutely. And uh, so Heidi has been teaching legal writing and really just an expert, at least I consider her an expert in the field of lawyering, what the practice of law is like. And she does a lot of uh, research in that area. She speaks all around the country. And one area that has really caught her interest is Gen AI or generative AI, which uh, everybody has probably heard of to one degree or another. So uh, today we're just going to have a conversation about AI, generative AI, how lawyers use it. In particular, since we have a lot of entertainment lawyers in our audience, how it might apply there into the legal field as a whole and just see where the conversation goes. So Heidi, tell our audience about your interest in this area, how you got started focusing on this uh, topic, and then really how you define it. Sure. So I started off my legal career in the DC area, actually. I was a construction litigator for 15 years before I started teaching legal writing, and I've been teaching legal writing for 15 years. I think this is the 30th anniversary of my year that I graduated from law school. So legal writing, I'm an introvert, so writing was always my voice as an advocate. I, I was a much better writer than I was a public speaker. And in the, my legal writing classroom last, I think it was April of 2023, I had a, kind of heard a little bit about this chat GPT thing, but I kept calling it chat GBT, so I had the, <laughs> the terminology all wrong. But I... I decided this was a weird teacher moment in the middle of my, my legal writing class. I got on it for the first time in front of my students and we ran an experiment of an assignment that I had assigned them. And I was kind of flabbergasted at how quickly it generated what I'd asked my students to spend a month doing. And so, you know, I had a little bit of a panic attack as a legal writing professor about what this meant for our profession, what this imagine, meant yeah. the art of writing. And just for our audience, because uh, I haven't mentioned the titles of your book, I wanted to get into it a little bit, but you've got a book series, The Mindful Legal Writer, published three books about well-being and uh, the performance, The Introverted Lawyer, which is a very popular book, Untangling Fear for Lawyering, uh, The Flourishing Lawyer multi-dimensional approach uh, to performance and well-being. So this is an area that you've really dedicated a lot of work in. So you were saying, I guess, a generative uh, AI scaring you as a writer in the legal profession? It scared me at first because I, I am an old school writer. I, I still grade with paper and pen. I love the art of writing. I love the craft of writing. So I got a little intimidated by the concept that maybe these machines were going to take over 
But then I decided I switched jobs last summer. I, I rejoined the faculty at New York Law School in this new role as associate dean for upper level writing. And I'm, I was so excited because I sort of had this blank slate to create again. And I decided to put myself in as many little generative AI boot camps as I could find because I, I'm not a tech person. I'm, I'm very kind of a Luddite when it comes to technology. But with this, I read an awesome article by a professor named Scott Graham who teaches at the college level out West. And he said, this is not a crisis moment. This is a huge opportunity for writers and teachers of writing and for, in my opinion, for lawyers as writers, I think all lawyers should identify at least in part as writers, huge opportunity for us to just embrace something new and, and work it into our lawyering process. Not think that it's going to take over our jobs, but supplement our jobs. So I kind of went into it with that mindset and I wanted to be able to frame it like that for my students, but I needed to learn how to use it. And I just threw myself into it head first, feet first, everything first, and just started attempting to get to know it. What I found over that summer, though, last summer, was that all the media, you know, every morning I'd read articles and it all, the whole theme was about fast, accelerate, you know, ramp up your efficiency, learn all this quickly, everything, all the words, the vocabulary was about speed, which I found very intimidating because as a writer, I like to take my time. So I just decided to reject all the messages out there about speed and ramping everything up, accelerating at the speed of light, and decided, I keep talking about it like shaking hands with generative AI, like, let's shake hands with these robots, these machines, introduce ourselves to them slowly, and practice using them slowly on our terms, kind of resisting all this pressure to do everything at the speed of light and embrace how we can experiment with how we can use them in our workflow as lawyers. So let me ask you, what are the best ways so far that you think we can use it? Well, for people who have never tried it before, use it in your personal life first, because the more you play around with it and have it do silly things like write a haiku about your favorite hobby or, you know, give you five fun things to do on the weekend that are creative and new. I mean, I found that if I experimented with it first in my personal life, I felt more comfortable than asking it to do things in my professional life. And I also could tell more readily where it was good and not good yet. It does things so fast that I think we can be dazzled and disoriented by how, how quickly it generates content. But that doesn't, as we know, like speed doesn't necessarily mean quality yet. I think it will continue to get better. Where I've found it really helpful so far is things like creativity, brainstorming themes about cases. It does this cool thing called tree of thought where you can ask it to generate a debate among three advocates. And you can even tell it, make sure one of the advocates takes this particular position. No matter what platform you try, ChatGPT, Claude AI, Google Bard just became Google Gemini. All the platforms will do these same prompts. We ask it to do things through prompts. And as lawyers, we need to learn this new skill of prompt engineering, which I think is such a cool term. For prompts, it's really the instruct for our audience. It's really the instructions for the AI. Yes. Like what would be an example instruction for our audience? 
So there's all these great prompt guides out there, but what they're recommending we do as, as lawyers is to give as much context as you can. So tell, introduce yourself, shake hands with the chat bot and say, hi, I want you to act in the role of, and then give it a role like lawyer or judge or client or deponent, right? Give it a role, give it a task to do, like generate a one page memo or a bullet point list give it the format you want the output in, and then give it the content you want it to discuss or analyze. Now we gotta be careful because the public versions of this can hallucinate law. So the term that the experts are using is hallucinate. So if you're not using like the legal versions of it, I mean, I don't know if I, I can say vendors names on here, but like Lexus AI and the Westlaw versions of this that are coming out. And a lot of the big law firms have started creating their own versions of this where those versions won't hallucinate, apparently, according to the, the experts, again, they won't hallucinate law. But if you're using the open versions, the public versions. And just on a note, I think a lawyer actually wrote a brief that had wrong citations. Was that up in New York, uh, yeah. your neck of the woods? I'm having my students research all the cases in the United States, and there have actually been five, which I think isn't that bad, actually. Can you briefly describe those cases for our audience? Yes. So because this technology came out so fast, I think that, you know, lawyers weren't 100% sure about how it functions and were misunderstanding how it actually generates fake case law that looks real. And it can also generate fake statutes, or it can mention a real case or a real statute, but give the wrong site. So in five different cases that I've found so far, lawyers did that. They used these tools to write briefs that were filed with courts, various courts across the country. And when the judges went, you know, and they had their clerks check the case law, the cases didn't exist or opposing counsel noticed that. Now, one bad thing, some of the lawyers doubled down and didn't admit readily that they had done that or didn't admit that they hadn't checked the case law. So that kind of made things worse for those lawyers ethically, obviously. But, you know, we, it was a good lesson, and it's a great lesson for all of us to realize we can't rely on these tools without learning, again, new skills. We're going to have to more readily and deeply do site checking, source checking. We can't rely on these sources and file the brief as soon as we get them generated. We have to vet and test and edit and revise and check everything. Yeah, I'll have to say that I uh, went on chat GPT with my law clerk, and um you know, I would give it just to play with it. Uh, we were talking about corporate law and some various things that, you know, were statutory schemes. And honestly, I mean, it was so-so. It was maybe better than so-so in terms of its accuracy, but not every, it wouldn't be something that you could just copy and paste and say, you know, here it is. But it sounds like from your perspective, editing work, uh, generating ideas, Yes. Whatever sort of things. It can be very creative. You can tell it to be more creative or less creative. Like, how would you do that? Let's say I want to write a love letter. Okay. Oh, that, that's a great example. I mean, it'd be totally disingenuous of me, right? <laughs> but I imagine people do that. It, it could just be creative anywhere across the board, right? And you can tell it, you know, give me four better verbs to say the word love, you know, or give me four metaphors for the theme of love. You can say, you know, take this sentence, this kind of generic sentence, and rewrite it five different ways. Got it. For that part, I think it's really cool and can make you think of ideas that you haven't thought of before. The other thing is, I don't know if this is still the case, but I learned last summer that you, 
it, there's this thing called temperature and you can tell it to use a high temperature. And then I don't know why the number is 1.0, but if you tell it use a high temperature, it's more creative in this output. If you tell it to use a low temperature. And that's a prompt, high and low temperature? Yes. On what, chat GPI? On all of them, I believe. Wow, interesting, okay. But I think instead of using the tech verbiage, I think we can just say, make these responses more creative. Cause it's not just one and done. You don't just prompt it, get an answer and you're finished. You keep having a conversation with it. It feels really human. I actually like it for that reason. So moving away from the topic of love, which is the first time we've ever talked about that in this podcast ever, <laughs> let's talk about like briefs and just editing briefs and correct citations and, you know, format, things like that. What's your experience with that with your students? I have a great quote on love and law, but that comes from my favorite band. Oh, you know, here we are. Might as well. Go for I it. I can't do a podcast interview without throwing in a YouTube Absolutely. <laughs> I may uh, have to generate a response from uh, ChatGPT while we're talking, but go ahead. Love the higher law, by the way. Okay, so briefs. I have not found it's capable of, of writing a brief for me because a brief is very voluminous. Now, I think it's good at writing shorter component parts. Okay. You tell it exactly the criteria that you're looking for. Like, like let's say you want to summarize a case. And I, when I summarize a case in a brief, I have a really kind of rigid formula. I describe the facts in a couple sentences, the holding, and a couple sentences of reasoning. If I tell the chatbot that's what I want, and then give it the material. Now, we're also not allowed to take proprietary cases from the publishers and put them in the chat GPT. So we got to be careful about that. But if it can pull that case off the internet anyway, you can say, please summarize the case of XYZ. And then you can say, now please edit the summary based on these criteria, you know, strong topic sentences or no passive voice. It can do that. Proper citation format? Yes. If you tell it which form of citation you want to use. So you can tell it, follow blue book citation, or you can say, follow this particular judge's or this particular court's citation rules. You have to give it context because otherwise it'll just pull, the public versions will just pull from the internet. So they might use, you know, MLA citation or APA citation form. So we have to be specific that it's legal citation. Do you think it is going to make the profession lazy? No, I actually don't. I think that's what my students are afraid of. They don't want to use it because they don't want me to think that I think they're lazy. And I'm actually telling them to use it because just like we all had to get used to using Lexis and Westlaw back in the day. I mean, I remember, I remember shepherdizing cases with the books and using- uh, Unfortunately, I remember that too. Yes. So, uh, you and I both- I don't think it's going to make us lazy. I actually think there's a lot being written now about how it's going to make us, I think Jordan Furlong wrote an article about how it's actually going to make the lawyering competency of quality control more important because we're not going to just outsource all our critical thinking to these chatbots. It might free up some cognitive space for us to do some of this more creative thinking, and maybe we can outsource some of the repetitive tasks, but it's going to up our game, I think, in terms of quality control. And I got that from Jordan Furlong's article. I didn't come up with that myself. As a writer, I think it's going to take us a little longer to use these chatbots in a proper way until we learn how to do them efficiently. I guess in that way, it's as an attorney, it's going to make us have to examine the output and fit it in whatever we're doing 
in a perhaps a more focused manner. Is that a fair statement? Yes, I do think that's going to change maybe the flow of our workflow. I think it'll force us to think about where can it fit into our workflow and where shouldn't it fit into our workflow. We all have you know, systems and routines and rituals of the way that we do our work. And I, I do think it's going to disrupt that, which is going to feel uncomfortable. But once we figure out how to slide it in where it can help us cut out repetitive tasks, maybe, I think it can enhance our productivity and our performance. Now, do you think it will be a problem for you as an academic in determining if something was done by AI? And what does that mean in grading and evaluation, not only in academia, but I guess in a lot of contexts where our written work has to be evaluated? Right. Well, a couple of things so far. So far, I've found I can tell when something sounds the vocabulary of things that I'm pretty sure have been written by AI. It doesn't sound like the person who I'm accustomed to speaking to me. So I I think that people who we know really well, it's going to be obvious what's been generated by AI and what hasn't. A couple of things I want to point out there, though, like I'm not prohibiting my students from using it. I'm actually taking, there's a couple of different approaches that academics are taking. Some are banning it altogether because they don't have the time in their course to teach it. Some are, are like half in, students can use it on some assignments. I'm talking about law students, on some assignments versus others. I'm going all in, but I'm making my students do reflections on how it's working with every assignment. So it's almost more work for them. <laughs> and then now judges, there's a great spreadsheet out there right now about every judge in the United States who's issued standing rules related to the ethical use of generative AI and submission of court documents. They're allowing it, but they're cautioning, and different judges are approaching it different ways. In New York, one Southern District of New York judge issued standing rules um, requiring lawyers to certify they've used it and to certify they've checked all the cases that were cited. A judge in the Court of International Trade, I think situated in New York, had a different set of concerns. And his concern was, can you attest that you haven't inputted any privileged client information into these chatbots? So judges are concerned about different things. And you know, a lot of states have task forces addressing this in their various state bars. So I think it's going to take us a while to figure out you know, what is the longer list of concerns about the hallucinations, about the privilege, about potential bias. It just sounds like what your message is, is that it's a skill that we need to acquire one way or the other now, whether the substance of its content is going to be accurate or appropriate is still something that we have to work through and discern. But as a skill, as an attorney, if you're not up to speed with it, if you've not played with it, then you are every day, you're just getting that further behind with others that are trying to use it. Yes. There's literature out there right now that says there's really kind of four new skills that lawyers need to think about in this regard. One is prompt engineering. How do you ask questions or how do you give instructions? And what's your recommendation on prompt engineering? If someone who's listening to us wants to learn more about prompt engineering, what, what do you recommend? Follow that setup with give it a role, give it a task to do, tell it the format you want it in, and give it a tone. So you can say, make this professional or make this more casual or make this funny or make this poetic or make it descriptive. 
So give it, again, give it a role, give it the task you want it to do, tell it the format you want the output in. Do you want it in a haiku? Do you want it in a bullet point? Do you want it in a paragraph? And then the tone you want it to take and then see what it does and then change one of those things and see how it changes. All right. And what's the next one? The next one, I have been calling it output discernment, but I'm sure there's a better term for it. But it's understanding just because something comes out of it fast doesn't mean it's good. So for really experienced lawyers, you're going to be able to discern good output from bad. But like law students or, or first year associates who don't have as much experience distinguishing well-written legal writing from non-well-written might be a little dazzled by how fast it comes out. So a new skill I, I think we need to really up our game on is really figuring out in various genres of legal writing, what makes something good? And having more conversations around that within our law firms, maybe even coming up with, I mean, I use a lot of rubrics and grading. I know that might seem like a weird word for a law firm, but if each firm could come up with like a quote rubric for a good client alert or a good contract, a good brief, or a little component parts of all these long documents, we're gonna get better at figuring out, discerning good output from bad. And then definitely because of the hallucination problem, site checking and authority checking, like making sure that if we're using the non-legal versions of these things, that we're checking every site and every... The other thing it does that can be kind of disorienting is how confident it seems. Because like, you'll ask you a question, it'll be like, oh, absolutely, the, you know, whatever the statement is. But you're, you feel so reassured, but then when you check it, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> so definitely having systems in place where we check every site, not just the citation format, but it does the site exist. And then the last skill is being comfortable embracing these tools. And, and like we said earlier, slipping them into our workflow, but learning how to get from maybe an AI-generated early, early preliminary draft to a final human-vetted excellent piece of work product. That's going to be new for us. Yeah. So in our time we have left, what AI systems are out there that you like either in like litigation, transaction? What have you been playing with that would be interesting for our audience? So I've definitely tried all the, the open access ones, ChatGPT. I, I've been paying the $20 a month for ChatGPT4. And are you happy with that? I am. Here's why. I love being creative in my visuals when I do presentations, but I'm a terrible artist and I'm so sick of using like boring stock art images. DAL-E, so D-A-L-L-E, ChatGPT4 uses DAL-E. I have these wild and crazy visions of the images I want to create, but I couldn't draw it if you paid me a million dollars. That is the coolest thing I've tried on ChatGPT4 because it'll create these really beautiful, creative images. The one thing I'll caution though that I didn't understand is it can't edit. Well, so far, I don't know how to ask it to do it. You can't change an image it already did. You have to ask it to regenerate the image and prompt it to do something and different. And that may or may not come out the way you want. Right, right. So that's, again, like an iterative trial and error process. But that is really cool. If you want to create new creative images to accompany presentations and things, client presentations, I love it for that. Claude and Google are 
they all generate the output even from the same prompt in a different way. So people might like different platforms better. I, I just keep trying all of them to, to learn. Any uh, unique platforms that you think might be of interest, even in creativity or anything like that? Well, in terms of learning how to use this stuff, I have been doing a lot of like online seminars and boot camps. Some of them cost money and others don't. Professors Ethan and Lilak Malik of Wharton at University of Pennsylvania, I think have like a five, theirs is free. Um, there's a five session webinar on, on just what all this terminology means and how to use it that I found really helpful. So that's Ethan and Lilak Malik. Write Law, so write, W-R-I-T-E period law, has a chat GPT for legal writers kind of boot camp. It does cost some money, but it's not very expensive. So if you want to learn from that. And then writer.io also has like paid little boot camps you can do just to learn the basics. I mean, I feel like as much as we can get to know the terminology, we'll feel smarter <laughs> about all this. But really the, the three open ones, I've also been experimenting with Lexus AI a bit, and you definitely do have to kind of push it a little harder to get the answers that I would expect to see, because I've been testing it out with law that I'm super familiar with, just because otherwise you believe everything that you know it generates. And sometimes you do have to push it. I mean, a lot of times I've had to push it a little harder to get the answers that I would expect to see from just one click. So I think it's going to get better and better and better, but we don't want to take everything at face value with just the first prompt. Got it. Okay. Well, in our closing time, best advice for a beginner and best advice for someone who has kind of dipped into this and is still trying to figure their way around it. Best advice for a beginner is just get on there for the first time and type in, make it write you a, like an inspirational message about something you love or just do something silly, but that will make you see how fast it does things. I wrote a little blog piece on like different prompts that you can try, but it's things like that. Give me five fun things to do this weekend in a foreign city that I'm unfamiliar with, but push it harder. Make it do non-touristy things. Five gift ideas for your most difficult to buy for family member. And then for people who are more savvy at this or have already experimented with it a little bit. I've been playing around with trying to take the medical concept of see one, do one, teach one. That's how medical schools, I think some medical schools teach things. And as a legal writer, that's how I've been trying to test out, will it learn from me? So I, you know, I know how to see a good piece of legal writing, but I'll take like a really small example, like summarize the elements of a statutory rule right? I know what that looks like. I've done them. So I did the see one and do one. Now I want to teach the chatbot how to do it. So I tell the chatbot, I want you to take this complicated statutory rule and tell me how many elements it has. Teach it how to do that and then see if it does it right. And if it doesn't, then we have to learn how to ask the questions better. Somebody made a great analogy. They, they said it's like a really over eager personal assistant who wants to please you, but doesn't know us yet. So we, we have to teach it how to speak to us and we have to speak to it in a way that it can understand us. So it's two way street. Well, I guess, uh, and that's the big question as to whether it is, uh, will ever be, or if it currently is self-actualized, right? You've heard those debates and stuff. I don't even know if you have an opinion about that. That's probably a whole other podcast, but yeah. I'm trying to maintain a positive outlook about it. Cause otherwise I'll get super depressed. <laughs> uh, so where do you think it's going? 
What's your vision as an associate dean? How is this actualized for you, say, three years from now, when you're a dean at Harvard Law or, <laughs> you know, one of the big uh, Ivy League? I'm very happy being an associate dean at New York Law School. I just want okay. to reiterate that. I have a huge passion for making sure that all the law students I teach identify as writers. I've been really embracing or really obsessing over this concept of writer identity formation as part of lawyer professional identity formation. I identify as a writer before any of my other fancy titles. Like I fill out forms saying writer before I say professor or lawyer. And I aspire for that for my students because I think if they can get excited about treating themselves as quote real writers, you know, like their favorite writers, and if generative AI can be a part of that, of getting them excited to treat themselves like real writers who have real routines and rituals, you know, like all our favorite authors do, then I feel like I've done my job because I loved writing as a lawyer and I didn't always love the performance aspects of it because I grappled with a lot of extreme performance anxiety. But through writing, I found my lawyer voice. So if we can do that for more junior attorneys, and if generative AI is can play a part in that, I mean, that would, I think that would revolutionize the profession. <laughs> and, and that's so good. I mean, I think for every lawyer, I mean, you know, there's so many lawyers uh, that write legalese and I find myself getting in that trap and it actually uh, spills into your personal life because you're so used to the, that legalese that just gets into personal communication and things like that. And so your approach really applies across the board and is obviously not only a healthy one, but one that just uh, keeps the spirit of creativity alive in all of us. So yeah, we can ask the chatbot to make this sentence sound less like legalese and it will do it. All right. Well, uh, writer Heidi Brown, <laughs> Professor Heidi Brown, Associate Dean Heidi Brown of uh, New York Law School. Thank you so much for being a guest here on uh, Brief Encounters, the uh, entertainment law edition. I think there's just some really good common sense and some good things that you've recommended to our audience and just understanding the skills. If there are resources that you think our audience might need, maybe we can post them when we post the podcast and go from there. So thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you and your time. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for having me. This episode of Brief Encounters was brought to you in part by our sponsor, LawPay. DC Bar members, sign up and we'll waive your monthly fee for three months. Learn more at lawpay.com slash DC Bar.